When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Angus Robertson, the former leader of the SNP in Westminster and someone who's bidding to be the SNP candidate for Edinburgh Central in next year's Holyrood elections. I've had Angus on the show before, he's one of the best guests I've had on, so it was a delight to get him back on because there's so much to talk about. Even in the short time since I last spoke to Angus, it feels as if though... Um, as he puts it in this interview, the tectonic plates are shifting. Now, that doesn't mean that tectonic plates can't shift back, forth, and, uh, well, I'm not a geologist. <laughs> I guess they can move in both directions, some of them. Um, my point is, I suppose, regarding Scottish independence, that you will have seen a consistent lead uh, in favour of, of uh, Scotland leaving the Union uh, amongst uh, those polled in Scotland. So it's really interesting to talk to Angus about this, not just because he's one of the SNP's brightest stars, but also because he's been doing so much work with a think tank that he set up after he lost in 2017. And we talk about that and just how much of a surprise that was, um, not just for all of us, but for him as well. But um, Progress Scotland is a think tank that he founded to understand the undercurrents of these opinions and what is it that people who voted no to leaving the UK last time need to hear in order to vote yes or leave or whatever the option is next time. How do you get people who were anti-independence to become pro-independence? So it's a fascinating uh, conversation that talks about that and about how his think tank works and about the sorts of questions they ask and the sorts of things they're trying to find out. And he breaks down some of those stats buyers by age group and that's all fascinating. But also um, with Angus, he's just such a brilliant talker anyway. So we talk about... uh, what he's been up to since 2017 you know the guy was one of the stars of the house of commons prime minister's questions really during the corbyn years angus was the unofficial leader of the opposition he was able to do so much with the two questions that he got every wednesday so we talk about that we talk about a whole range of things all the things you'd expect me to talk about with angus how is the next if there is a next referendum how is it different from the last one what will they do differently um and of course uh, as, as you may gather um particularly if you've read my book which is still available to buy um about the tone of it and about whether next time things <laughs> it's such a you know what what is the point in even asking it because i think any democratic exercise anywhere in the world now uh, is conducted in a particular tone but are there any chances that perhaps the next uh, independence referendum if there is one uh, might be conducted in a slightly different tone but also about whether those sorts of things are counterproductive, you know, whether sometimes the ferocity of online debate uh, hurts the hurts the side that uh, that its passionate supporters might think it's helping. So there's a whole load of stuff in here, including um, the focus on Holyrood as opposed to Westminster. And uh, I don't want to ruin this, but he's had a, a particularly he's had a couple of amazing uh, celebrity endorsements. So we talk about those. So there's a lot in this. And uh, as a bonus, you don't just get Angus Robertson, you get uh, his uh, wife, Jennifer. You know, it wouldn't be a modern Zoom call if the family didn't come in at some point. Um, and his daughter, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this, Shish, 
Shisha, something like that. It's, it's written in Gaelic. It's it's quite hard to pronounce. But anyway, um, this is brilliant. And I, again, I know a couple of the recent ones have been a bit longer, but sometimes I think if the conversation's really good, I'm not just going to artificially cut it off at an hour. And it's not that I'm deliberately trying to overrun, but I think if I'm really enjoying it, and I, I realise I'm abusing my guests' uh, you know, <laughs> good nature by keeping them longer than I promised I would, but sometimes I think, oh, I haven't quite got round to, to asking that. And with this, there was still that, but I thought... It was still kind of flowing, so it runs a little long. But uh, I always think, well, if I'm really enjoying this and I'm engrossed, at least one of you listening will be. So um, there you go. For the one person that wants to hear extra long political chats, this is for you. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all of you, those of you that have been doing that, particularly um, not just about the podcast, but about Spitting Image and about the book. It's uh, it's very, very kind of you. But for now, I will leave you uh, with Angus Robertson. I began by asking R- Angus um, about that, you know, that sudden change that happens in politics where he goes from being not just an MP, but as I say one of the brightest stars in Parliament, a fixture at Prime Minister's Questions, um, to then all of a sudden losing in 2017. So I began by asking him whether the result in 2017 took him by surprise. Yep, it did. And I'm still thinking back to how the campaign ran and because every day you're out and you're speaking to people. I know politicians talk the whole time about, oh yeah, the, the, the feedback on the doors was this, that, and the next thing. Um, uh, but I am telling the God's honest truth that the whole way through that, that whole campaign, um, there was not a single canvassing session that we were behind. Wow. And uh, well, that tells you a number of things. You know, it could have been a last minute thing. People were perhaps not being entirely um, direct about their intentions, he says <laughs> euphemistically. Um, uh, you know, it's not it's not like I lost by you know twenty two votes. Um, something was happening, and it was the uh, it was the washback from the be- Brexit uh, referendum where people who in some parts of uh, what is uh, still a coastal constituency have a very strong uh, feeling fishing community, dislike of the European common fisheries policy. So in in some of these places, which are very strongly SNP voting, people decided not to vote um, SNP in that election. Uh, And I just just got caught caught up in um, in the wash. And, you know, you can choose to take these things very personally or not. Obviously, you know, if you're in politics, you love politics. If suddenly you're not in it, uh, that, you know, that's a loss. It's like losing an, an arm or a leg. But you have a choice to make about how, how you then use that circumstance and decide whether you're going to carry on, do something different. And I've, you know, I've done a bit of both. But it was a big loss, not just for you personally. You know, it must be horrible to lose your seat, particularly if you're kind of prepared for victory. But it was a loss for the party as well. You know, it would, it would be like Scotland losing Andy Robertson in the run-up to the Serbia game. You know, you were the kind of the star performer in the Commons and it was... It's the first time I've ever been, <laughs> um, ever, ever been compared with my, my uh, namesake, at least in, in surname ter- terms. Well, that's kind, but um, um, nobody is irreplaceable. And uh, by, by people moving on, you, the other people can then shine and other people are... Uh, uh, pick up the ball and and run with it. And as we know, uh, things have changed in ways that are scarce imaginable um, even two or three years ago. And that is one of the things that I've been doing um, since then, which is I set up a a research organization called Progress Scotland to try and understand people who 
are, are not yet there or are getting there, as in they are people who either voted no in 2014 or were unconvinced in 2014 and are now somewhere else. And um, we, we do more research than anybody else does in this area. It's not a, a, a standard polling exercise. We don't, for example, ask the yes, no question. Uh, we had a poll this week, Ipsos Mori, independent support of 58%, the highest ever. We had a poll that came out and we released in four days preceding that, explaining where, where people were in terms of the movement. Very few people go from you know, no, yes, remain, leave, um, when it's a straight question on, on a big issue. People tend to move and their thinking evolves. And what, what we're trying to do, we, we poll with surveillance, it's professionally done, it's, you know, I know you get a lot of slack, uh, flack um, if you're, you have an avowed political um, identity, which of course I do. And I'm trying to understand this from the perspective of well, what do we need to, to learn to do more of or less of to, to help give people assurance, reassurance, uh, and so on. Uh, so we're able to learn a lot of really interesting things about what's changing. And if people haven't realized this, the changes that are the tectonic plates are really moving in Scotland at the moment. And the number of people who are saying, I never, ever imagined that I thought I would be thinking what I am now, um, goes a long way to explaining why uh, it's, you know, it's now 10 opinion polls with a yes majority. And if you look at it by age group, I mean, it's, I mean, I've got, I've got some of the numbers in front of me. They're just eye popping amongst 16 to 24 year olds, 79% of, of that age group are pro yes. And it's a majority in every single age cohort until you get to 65 plus. The other thing that hasn't been much noted yet is it's now every single strata society. It's, um, uh, it's AB, it's C1, it's C2, it's DE, majority in all of them. And uh, obviously there's a lot of other groups where there's been movement. EU citizens, for example, would now overwhelmingly majority, yes. And there would be a growing phenomenon of people who've moved to Scotland from elsewhere in the UK previously, um, we're a very difficult group to to persuade. Very significant growth there as well. So the world is changing. It is. Just before we come on to that, because the the stats are fascinating, um, and I really want to get into those. The name of the of the organisation is interesting. Progress has certain connotations to people like me, who were uh, part of the Blairite wing of the Labour Party. Was was that a, was that a, was that a brand perhaps chosen with a with a view to positioning yourself? Did I choose to emulate Matt Ford and New Labour? Um, <laughs> and I, I can confirm exclusively on your podcast. No, and there's no there's no insult intended there at all. I, I view, I view Scottish self-determination, Scottish independence as being, progre being progress, as being progressive. We are empowering, we, are, we would be able to make decisions for ourselves and, and, and um, we'd be able to make better decisions. Um, so that's it, it's pretty simple, it's nothing more than that. I, don't, I wasn't actually thinking about any other political party or political movement or um, excellent comedian and podcast <laughs> presenter. Anyway, move on. So on the stats then, um, and it is interesting that age difference, you know, once you hit 65, you're more likely to be in favour of staying in the union at the moment. Is that because, and I know I've, I must have asked you this before, but is that because you think that is a particular generation of a set of values that are ageing and those values basically stay with them? Or is it that as you get older, you're more likely to look favourably on membership of something like the UK? So how do the numbers go in, in the age groups immediately below 
65s, does it taper off as it gets older? Support for independence. Yeah, I mean, so we start 16 to 24, 79%, 25 to 34-year-olds, 68%, 35 to 44, 70%, 45 to 54, 55%, 55 to 64, 57%. And then you get to 65. It's not broken down older than 75. In terms of what, how you can explain that, I think there's a number of things, one of which might not come instantly to mind, which is how do different age cohorts... Uh, consume news and information okay and i think there's definitely something about uh, uh information and how people um are are learning about changes in in society and i think that's one of the reasons why it's had this 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 more profound impact amongst younger voters who as we know uh, get their news and information from different sources than their grandparents do uh in terms of um this particular um, uh, age, and I, I came under flack for this um, a few weeks ago where I was pointing out just very actuarially and not being happy clappy about this at all, but literally there are 50,000 voters who come on to the electoral roll in Scotland every year and there are 50,000 who depart. And, and that change, so that's me being polite about younger people being able to vote and older people um, um, passing away. Uh, that, that in itself is having a profound impact um, below the radar screen because it's below the margin of error. Year on year, an overwhelming cohort of people coming in as yes supporters and then um, from a cohort that's overwhelmingly opposed no longer uh, being with us. Now, for the avoidance of doubt, I do not wish for anybody to be passing away in any circumstances, least of all for um, a, a political purpose. I'm just making an observation about the fact that electorates change, they change here, they change everywhere else. And this is one of the factors which is leading to um, the, the, the changes that have, have been ongoing. So some of it has been happening slow and in a way that is perhaps not noticeable month to month, year to year. Now there's almost this, this sense that there is a tectonic plate that has moved. And one area that I'm very interested to understand more of, and I don't have the answer to this, so I'm just putting this out there. There's perhaps some of the next work that we'll be doing in, in Progress Scotland is what, what is the, the sort of peer impact of people saying to one another, do you know what I've I've now I've now had it. I you know I am pro-European. I voted Remain. I voted No in 2014, but now I've had it. And there was a very interesting contribution by a, um, an English student on BBC Question Time uh, last week, uh, who said that um, he had arrived in in Edinburgh. That most of his his new Scottish friends were pro-independence. That he had not. He would have been you know pro-union in his own words um, when he arrived and now he, he I mean he just explained and for any Scottish viewers who are watching it were yeah totally he was explaining how he had learned uh, why it is that so many of us feel it just be infinitely better for us to be independent than not so this there's there's definitely things happening here and when I watch Network UK News and I watch because there's so much obviously on at the moment with with pand the, the pandemic and uh, but there is there are other politics on the United States politics on here um, as well in a slightly different form um, I, but there's definitely something happening at the moment and obviously you know Boris Johnson by omission or commission is a significant um, part of of that um, uh, and having an impact on I think he's a, he's 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 an accelerant he's he's speeding up. Uh, people coming to this conclusion. I know you wanted the uh, UK to remain in the EU, and that's how you voted. But 
it's hard not to conclude that actually Brexit has, has been the biggest single catalyst for you really post the 2014 referendum. It, it is. We know that and that our polling shows us that. It's the biggest single identifiable reason why people, and you, it's very easy to understand, in 2014 people were said vote no to Scottish independence. That's the only way of guaranteeing Scotland's uh, remaining in the European Union. So some people go, well, that's very important to me. So I'm, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote no. And then two years later, because the voters elsewhere making a decision effectively on your behalf are saying, well, we don't actually care what you think. Uh, we might be a multinational state, but we're not federal. And, you know, we're, there's more of us than there is of you. Ergo, we're all out. Um, and people here going, well, hold on a second. What about this family of nations? What about this respect agenda? What about this, um, you know, um, living with one another and it all being, you know, us being the sum, more than the sum of our parts? Well, it's rubbish. It's isn't just, it, it's so it, not true. Isn't it something slightly more distinct than that? It's not necessarily that people in 2014 voted with the EU in mind. It's that the tw because so many people just presumed that the Brexit referendum, we were going to remain, you know, I did. And so many other people did. Isn't it more that the Brexit outcome has really made people in Scotland with this ongoing independence debate, reassess the values of the UK as they perceive it. Yeah. And there's very much a sense that um, the values of the UK as people, however people might've seen them, they have definitely changed. But do you think um, they have? I mean, Brexit was held up a mirror, didn't it? Like, it's not as if Britain all of a sudden changed on the 26th of June, 2016. I don't know. I think it, uh, it may have been something that you would recognise from certain tabloid newspapers, but I never thought that that was a kind of... I, I didn't think that that reflected the values of, of, of Britain, if you want to call it that. And suddenly these things that were the sort of more, to my mind, more distasteful, anti-immigrant, um, anti-foreigner, anti-European sentiment was being ladled out by, by certain newspapers that I'm not even going to name, but we know what they are. Um, they went from being influential, no doubt, in, in British political terms, to, to frankly being the government agenda and being led by a pro-Brexit buffoon who in Scotland would not even get on a community council. And this guy is the Prime Minister of the oh, United Kingdom. Oh, he might, he might, he might. <laughs> you honestly, you haven't, I, I mean, uh, well, maybe you might get on some community councils, I don't know, but I just, I just think most people would be totally unelectable in Scotland. And he's our Prime Minister. But then that's, that kind of makes the wider point that, you know, people like me to talk about is that we're constantly being governed by people we don't vote for. I mean, I get that. And I, you know, Boris Johnson is not popular in large parts of England, large parts of London, you know, and, and elsewhere. I just, I guess, and this is my own personal politics coming to this, but as someone who is a Remainer, who is pro-UK, pro-EU, who consider myself to be a progressive person and internationalist and outward looking and all the rest of it, um, I think Brexit kind of hurts as a reason because I think, I feel like England's kind of being damned by the Brexit result. And although it tells you certain things about England and indeed, parts of Scotland that voted to leave. Um, I don't feel like it's the full story. And I kind of feel like, you know, we're not that bad. We're not all xenophobic. Some of us are all right. And it kind of, it kind of hurts as a conversation to be having, because I think I just, you know, I'm, I'm gutted that we're leaving the EU and it looks like we might leave without a deal and all that sort of nonsense. And it's awful. But I think it's not the full story of the UK. It's not the only thing. There are other things that bind us beyond... I agree with you, Matt. I agree. I, I agree. And we shouldn't... Um, so you and I, and many people listening to this podcast, probably agree with that, that we, we will be in agreement with that. And where my heart goes out to friends in England is that 
I, I'm not sure that there's an, an uh, as um, easy an answer um, as easy to grasp an answer as we have in, t in terms of, well, let's just do this ourselves and, and not subcontract our governance to elsewhere. Um, obviously, in English politics, there's, you know, what's gone on with the Labour Party in recent years and trying to, um, and to, to, to rediscover a, a moderate Labour Party, an electable Labour Party, you know, what's happened with the centre ground in, England, in English politics. Um, it's not easy. And if I lived in England, I, I think I would find it very, very difficult and very depressing. Um, uh, but I don't want to counsel despair. You have to, to anybody listening to this podcast and in, in England that's wanting to go in, and go into politics and, and change the world and make make the country a better place. You're, you know, you are really needed. So please do it. Um, and would, would strongly encourage, you know, do not give up hope. Have to believe things will be uh, better for us. We we have this alternative that we can uh, that we can embrace. Uh, sooner rather than later, as it now looks, and I, I find that immensely exciting. Listen, I, I suppose in a way Brexit is a kind of gift, isn't quite the right word, but I kind of it's an opportunity for you because in a way, in 2014, independence was seen as the kind of risky move, but you can now say, look, if it's a no deal Brexit, the balance of risk has changed. Yeah, there is no status quo. The status quo that was a known quantity in 2014 vote for the continuance of the United Kingdom uh, that's in the European Union, and this is how it works, and these are the checks and balances. Uh, that, that's not there anymore. So what is riskier? Uh, the risk of being in charge and being able to make decisions which on balance are probably going to be better than those that are made on your behalf by people who don't share your, your values and your priorities. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the... the, the uh, the the nature of the debate uh, and the appreciation of risk uh, is very very different, and I think for some societal groups, I mean, take for example, so I'm speaking to you from the middle of Edinburgh, a big financial centre um, with quite a lot of people who've come from elsewhere in the UK, brackets mostly from England, um, live here. Incidentally, that's me too. I know I probably don't sound it, but I'm, I'm a Londoner by by birth. I just leave that aside there. Um, <laughs> but what the, the point that I'm trying to make is that for those kind of people working in financial services, um, uh, would mostly have voted to remain. Edinburgh was one of the highest voting remain um, places in the country. The prospects of independence where, if you want, you can retain your UK citizenship for the rest of the UK, and you can have a Scottish European citizenship at the same time, is, I think, understandable and attractive in a way that it certainly wasn't in 2014. And so there's been a total mental judo throw for a lot of people in all of this. Now, some people have got that, are more comfortable with that. Some people are still discombobulated by the fact that um, uh, it, it, the, the surroundings have moved around them. They don't feel that they've moved, but the world has changed around them. And that is very disconcerting for some people. And part of what I need to do and part of what I think I can do is I think I'm, because I think myself into other people's um, thought process about these things quite a lot, is I think I'm reasonably good at, at, at trying to help communicate to people why this is the best thing to do and why it shouldn't be a matter of concern. Uh, and that, that's one of the things that I'm really excited about in the, in the next phase as we move towards India Ref 2, which will come, I, I think, after the next Scottish Parliament elections next year.
So whereas Brexit presents sort of opportunities to, to redefine Scottish independence, perhaps in terms of values, as opposed to what the perceived values are of the current UK government, doesn't it also present a kind of case study for why leaving unions can be really tricky? And people might look at Brexit and go, this has been really hard to figure out. Isn't Scottish independence going to follow the same playbook where you go through this painful divorce and then you're left with a bill? And actually in the immediate aftermath, economically, it's, it's really difficult. Well, all of this needs to be weighed up with the challenges and difficulties and downsides of doing nothing. So my point really is doing nothing is not an option. And there are, there are, there are, there's a, we're at a fork in the road. And because frankly, this third way that is only ever talked about where the SNP is doing well and when independence is on the cards, oh, well, you know, we'll come up with a federal solution, right? Name me a single federation in the world, anywhere, at any time, where 85% of the population uh, live. Silence. <laughs> there is not one. Oh, sorry, there was one. It was called the Federation of Serbia and Montenegro. And how long did that last? Not very long. There is not that as a workable, realistic, practicable um, a solution. So we're at a fork in the road. We stay where we are. We moan. We're unhappy. We blame others for making bad decisions. Or um, we, we, we choose a path which involves change, um, but it, inv it involves tremendous opportunities. So just as a walk for again, I made the point, I'm sitting in the middle of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is the capital of a devolved nation. So we have a Scottish government, but it doesn't have everything else that goes with um, the, the governance of a state. So instantly, Edinburgh, a capital city, suddenly has a diplomatic um, uh, footprint. It suddenly has a third sector footprint that goes with a sovereign state. It has a civil service that employs bright people here and with civil service job dispersal around the rest of the country as well but rather than paying bright people to work on our behalf in Whitehall they will be working here so if we're able to explain to people that this change and it involves change don't, don't misunderstand me man I mean independence involves change I know a lot of people think oh change I don't like change I don't want change I'd like things to stay the same oh no hold on a second I definitely don't want them to stay the same that's kind of where we are. So we have to, you know, we, we, doing nothing is not an option. So either we're going to move through these changes and some of them, some of them will take uh, longer than I would like and some of them will involve difficult decisions. I am not blithely going to write on the side of a bus, you know, some nonsense uh, as we saw during the, the European referendum. And I think just as a side note to all of this, I think one of the big differences for us with the next independence referendum to the, to the last one is I think there is going to uh, be a, a lot more nuance, and there certainly should be. Um, I, I, we all went in with the best of intentions in 2014, and I was a part of that as much as anybody else. And we were trying to paint the upside and the sunny uplands, um, and people just won't believe that there's only upsides to any proposition. And I think one of the differences for me um, is to, uh, to acknowledge uh, that there is change, uh, that some of it will take time, that some of it will cost, but that is as of nothing compared to doing nothing. And I think for people who are um, in that in-between open-minded, undecided group, 
which is about 20% of the Scottish electorate, I think that is a, a profoundly more uh, attractive proposition. You're appealing to people's intelligence. Uh, they will work out if the balance is right for them. And I think that is the case that we'll be making in the next referendum. And it's one of the contributing factors why we will win. That fear is around just the cold, hard economics of it, isn't it? People look at the expenditure and revenue in Scotland. They say, well, actually, we're, we're kind of a, a beneficiary of the UK mechanism. Regardless of who's in Downing Street, we're able to spend more than we bring in. That's a, that's a benefit that we get from being in the UK. If we leave, we're going to have to make up that shortfall. We're either going to have to tax more or we're going to have to spend less. The financial or we're going to borrow. Or, or, or we yeah. will borrow like everybody every single other country in Europe apart from Norway. So, yeah. yes, it is all of those things. It is all of those things. So and, oh, uh, God, you know, Brexit plus independence is like job losses. I'm going to have to lose my home. I might lose, you know. It, well, and, I, people, I mean, they must be people's concerns. That must be the main anxiety. Some people will have those concerns. I refer you to the answer I gave a moment <laughs> ago. Um, I totally agree. Um, oh, I've, I've, I've now just been joined by, by, by two dogs and... Um, <laughs> Um, and a baby, and um, <laughs> ah, hello there. Oh wow, she's grown up. Hello, she's Uncle Matt. <laughs> hello. hello, Uncle Matt. Hello there, Sasha. Is that right? Have I pronounced that right? Sursha. Sursha. Very close. It's Sursha. hard when it's written in Gaelic. Sursha. So, for the benefit of the tape, uh, Angus's daughter, who was a lot smaller the first time I met her at the Edinburgh Festival just over a year ago. He's now here. <laughs> Don't you want to wait until she's old enough to vote till you have the next referendum? Another kind of 15 years. Has this happened, just before we come back to the point, has this happened quite a lot for you during lockdown? A, a sort of family life intruded on Zooms and things? It's, um, lockdown has been, has been great uh, for the opportunity, well, not an opportunity being forced to, um, be in the house and be around and uh, my wife Jennifer and I have had to work out how can we do childcare and, and, and make that work. She, she has a, um, she has a busy work agenda. I've got a whole lot of things on uh, and that that's a challenge. Of course it is. Um, um, but before lockdown, we were moaning about how we weren't spending enough time with baby daughter. So um, I'd far rather have time and spend it with her and see her growing up she's great fun so um yeah because i think for, for a lot of people uh, this period is, i think it's been hardest for people with young children having to homeschool and stuff and you know be in the house together anyway can be stressful but with a young child but it sounds like you've managed it very well well you have you have times when it's it's more challenging than other times <laughs> uh of course um but um you know and, super lucky Jen's mum is unbelievably helpful um and has has you know saved our bacon a lot and uh like you say there's lots of people who've been in lockdown circumstances which are infinitely more challenging and 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 difficult and people are on their own people with health conditions um uh, people who have have concerns about what might happen if they get ill and I've, I've not felt that um, personally uh, at all. Um, so I'm just very cognizant of being, being in a fortunate position compared to other people. Sorry, I know that's sounding very heavy, but that's... No, I think that's right. That's no, I think, that's, uh, I think anyone who's been able to get through it, you know, is, is a very positive thing. But um, so we just talk about, you know, the, the, the 
the potential downsides of of, 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 a, of, a, of a pro-independence vote and what might immediately follow. I mean, do you worry then, you know, because these are the things in a, in a if there is going to be a second independence referendum, these are the things that people on the UK side, you know, whatever it's called next time are going to say. And then that may well be a referendum campaign run by Dominic Cummings, who has a track record of, of winning, um, you know, uh, referendums, sometimes in difficult circumstances. You know, that is going to be the thing that's at the top of their list, isn't it? Is that if you vote for independence, you might think Brexit's well, rubbish, but if you vote for independence, your job, your home, your livelihood. I, I don't want to be giving any advice to the other side in the referendum. <laughs> so maybe I won't say it very loudly. <laughs> If they run the same referendum campaign that they did last time just by turning up the volume, they're definitely going to lose. But it will be different this time, won't it? You know, it coming well, the very difference is if, if, if they are going to have a chance, they are actually going to have to enunciate a positive case. Yes. And simply running a negative case is not going to be good enough for them. The difficulty for them is, um, you know, rolling out a Billy Britain. Um, uh, better together Mark II thing um, is um, I mean, has absolutely zero chance in my estimation um, the, the case for yes is going to be more developed and more nuanced and uh, the, the, a number of things have fundamentally changed on Europe, on the economy on governance and, and so on and we have, we have seen government since 2014, how they have acted in relation to Scotland, other devolved administration. And we're now seeing it uh, within England as well, where, you know, the COVID experience for people in, um, in the north of England in particular, people are just saying, we've had enough of this nonsense. And quite right too. Right? They see people like Andy Burnham and colleagues in Liverpool and, and all the rest. I just think, you know, go for it. Um, because the, the the metropolitan arrogance that has existed for far too long of viewing, you know, the restless natives in in Yorkshire or Scotland or wherever it is, just as a problem to be managed. Well, um, you know, we will be long gone, but un unless people can have some bright thoughts about how they can reinvigorate England and the different regions and. Uh, and and the rest of it, um, it's in, in it's in trouble, right? Somebody's saying hello to you here. Yes, yeah, right. you're live on TV. Hi, hi, Jen. How are you I've doing? Got better, I've got a better answer for you than that. But I'll oh, go you. on. Well, the vow, they've yes. obviously just you know that has just completely um, decimated trust and Brexit. All the things that they said was going to happen, if, if a yes vote happened that you know, was their worst possible scenario has actually happened because of Brexit already. So, you know, people But things, are, things are, can always get worse. But they can always get better, Matt. <laughs> oh, I know. That's I always thought you were a glass half full kind of guy as well. <laughs> oh, I am, I am. But, you know, I'm, I'm also a, a, a pragmatist, you know. But, I mean, but doesn't that actually kind of reveal... What some people's attitude will be is that, yes, I think a no-deal Brexit is bad, but there's a potential for this to make it worse and not better. You know, that will be an anxiety of a, of a portion of the public. Yes, of course it will. And, you know, this is not the first time that you and I have had this conversation. So, you know, I, I don't think it's the most sober we've been, actually, when we've I don't, I don't think you're taking a fifth on that. I don't, I don't think I'm getting every, any secrets away that what you're enunciating are pretty close to the views and the concerns that you have. And I take them really seriously because, 
you know, you, you know, it's it's emblematic of a view that is there and is it's a view that's held by, you know, a significant part of the population. Um, but I think with with the, the the circumstances having changed around people, it is disconcerting and it is discombobulating. And I think helping people get through that process of going, well, I'd rather not be here. Okay, I get that. But we are where we are. The world is as it is. And we find ourselves in circumstances that you would not have chosen, I would not have chosen. And now we have some options. And the options are either to do something, to, to hold the power in our hands and try and make the best out of it, um, or not. And when I think of all of those other countries, let's just stick in Europe, for example, that were confronted by having to make similar choices in different circumstances. I'm not comparing Scotland, I don't know, with Eastern European countries coming out of the, the yoke of Soviet oppression. Um, but there are countries that emerged through different points of history. I mean, take Norway, for example. I mean, when Norway became independent in 1905, it was the poorest country in Europe. You cannot even conceive of that now being the case because it's the richest. And I'm not saying Scotland becomes independent and then we're, we're you know, overnight, uh, everything is great and land and milk and honey and money trees and, and all of that. Of course not. I just think, look at our neighbours, and by neighbours, I mean all of them. Ireland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, where they all have in common. They're all about the same size. Guess what? They're all richer than us. And what is it that is unique about these countries and their circumstances that makes them so? Because their economies are quite different, their populations are, are quite different, how they have developed is quite different. The thing they have in common is that they have made the right decisions for their countries in the right period of time. We haven't been able to do that. So what would, I mean, you've obviously thought about this beyond what a referendum result would be. What model would you like a, a, an independent Scotland to take? Because Ireland and Norway are two very different models. I mean, do you, do you become a tax haven? Do you become a, a low tax kind of Northern Europe, the Singapore of Northern Europe? I think a lot of that has changed regardless of whether that was the right choice in the 1990s or in the noughties or even going back into the 80s. I think there, there's so much about uh, the changing nature of economies now that we, we're going to have to have the right solution. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm not trying to um, um, avoid answering your, your question, but take, for example, the entire digital uh, and online sphere. Um, we, we have not yet come up with a way to properly tax that really important part of, of our economy and for everybody to pay a fair share. And, and that's just an example of, well, you know, this is one of the biggest things that is with us right now. We haven't got this right. We haven't got this right as a UK. We haven't got it right as an EU. The US hasn't got it right either. But we're going to have to get it right. And so I suppose what I'm trying to say to you is that we are going to have to come up with the right uh, decisions uh, going forward rather than, rather than looking back. But one of the things that does appeal to me is that I think Scotland has a natural appeal. And it has an appeal not just for Scots who may have gone abroad and are this exciting things now happening at home. I'd like to take my experience. I'd like to take my earnings, I would like to take my savings, and I'd like to be back in Scotland at this exciting time. I think it's also going to be a country that will um, be welcoming of people from from elsewhere. Don't get me wrong, there are narrow-minded people in, in Scotland just as there are, are everywhere else. But I think one of the things that I've been really 
pleased to see in recent years is this notion of a sort of civic uh, patriotism, civic nationalism in Scotland. It's not, not ethnic. It doesn't matter where you come from. If this is your home, you can be a Scot, you can be a hyphenated Scot, you can call yourself whatever you like. But it's quite easy for people to come here, feel welcome, and feel a part of things. And I think that's known and understood. And I think if, um, if we are able to develop the economy in certain ways um, that is providing the industries of the future uh, with a potential home, uh, I, I think Scotland uh, can be not aping Ireland or Norway or Iceland, or, but because we are the size that we are, best place to be able to make the right decisions about the economic opportunities of the future. I take the point you make about the kind of civic identity. It, it, is that still problematic? You know, it's not the same nationalism as obviously the BNP or the EDL or anything like that. But is there not a danger that, that a kind of moral superiority can, can run alongside with that, where you think, well, actually, we're a bit better than you? And, and doesn't that create problems? Uh, it's it, it well. It's not a view I share. Um, is are are there are, are there risks of extremes of each and every creed in each and every circumstance in each and every country? Of course, there are. Scotland's not perfect. It's and uh, um, you know, pe- 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 like I, I said it myself a, a few moments ago. There are there are narrow-minded people um, in Scotland as there are elsewhere. But I think there is a prevailing view, a prevailing civic view. Uh, that uh, um, and it is a consensus uh, that we are a country that welcomes people from different places, and, and some of that comes from our history, of course, because Scotland has always been a country both of immigration and emigration, at, often at the same time, and um, it is it is a par- part of our national story, and uh, and it's very it's very obvious. It's you, you know you don't need to take any number of steps wherever you are to you know be, be tripping over people who've come here from you know you name it I mean obviously the most recent um, places have been you know the Poland and Baltic states and, and so on um, uh, but before that you know Italians before that um, uh, Russian Jewish emigres before, and you know and you just go back into antiquity and it seems to have managed quite well. But I think, I mean, for the, for the, the here and now, for the, the Scotland of 2020 and going forward, uh, and a country that thinks of itself as being European and being pretty much at ease with its sense of itself as a small northern European country, I think us rejoining the European Union, I think we'll be welcomed with open arms. And I think uh, we we will embrace the fact that we will again be citizens of... Um, a community of 500 million people uh, with the ability to to live, work, and and travel wherever we want. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's say that there's an, uh, an independence referendum soon, you win it. And then at some point you have another referendum to join the EU as an independent Scotland. Isn't that, I mean, it's easy to look at the, the EU referendum here and go, well, of course, Scotland would vote to join the EU. It's, it's, it's a dead cert. It's not exactly certain, is it? Even if I was a better man, I would put money on it. You know, the, the debate about rejoining as an independent member state might throw up all other new debates that people might, you, know, you might end up with a hard border with England, you know, which I understand might be attractive to some people, but I think to most people that go, oh God, actually, EU membership means something different as an independent member state than it did as part of the UK. Well, to answer your, your, your first question, it is one of the questions that we ask um, uh, in Progress Scotland and the, the surveyation poll that we um, carried out um, at the end of September, beginning of October. This was one of the questions that we asked uh, whether an independent Scotland should be a full member of the European Union and taking out people who don't have an opinion on the answer is 67%. Yes, but what I mean so is but when you get there, I get it's the a different debate, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know? get the point. I get, of, of course, um, that as you proceed down the road, uh, some people might be less happy, some people might be more happy about yes. <laughs> how that develops. But I just, 62% of people here voted to remain in the European Union. That has gone up to 67% wanting Scotland to be um, a, a member state of the, um, the European Union. You know, the, U, the UK is effectively putting up borders with Ireland. There, there are, you know, things are being built at ports in the southwest of Scotland to deal with traffic from another part of the United Kingdom into Great Britain. Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but you know, this, is, this is a consequence and people have to realize this. Others have made a decision that has consequences. So then what and, would your relationship be? Let's say Scotland is independent. How then do you see the future relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK? People talk about a kind of what is it, like a Council of the Isles or something yeah. similar to that? What would that be and how would that work? Well, I mean, that we'd, well, firstly, we don't need to reinvent the wheel because there is a Council of the Isles. It exists. Its secretariat is in Edinburgh. That brings together the UK government, the government of the Irish Republic, the four devolved administrations, um, and uh, uh, the, um, the islands, uh, Channel Island, Island Man, and so on. Um, so something exists, it's, it's not as well developed as it could be. How do we know that it's not as well developed as it could be? Well, let's look at our, our Nordic neighbors because they've had something for quite a long time called the Nordic Council and that works quite well for them. And they coordinate with one another. As we know, some of them are in the EU, some of them are not. Some of them are NATO, some of them are not. But they have the Nordic Council, which brings together um, um, uh, where they pool their interests in there. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm really in favor of that as being a runner, but... Um, it takes others to realize uh, that they also should take such a thing seriously. And if there is to be a, a, a problem, and I hope there isn't, um, it is the, the inability of decision makers in London to realize um, that in Europe, there are only two kinds of countries. And those are either one, smaller size countries, or be countries who haven't realized that they're also a lot smaller than they think they are. And um, 
decision makers in London still are, to my mind, far too haughty about um, uh, how important they think uh, they are uh, in relation to, to other countries. Um, and perhaps it will take losing a third of the landmass uh, of the United Kingdom uh, and the wealth that Scotland has uh, and its geostrategic location, which is very important for defence and security. And all of these things matter to the rest of the UK. Of and I understand that. That's one of the reasons why I'm more of an optimist about being able to have genuinely a proper grown-up relationship. Um, but it's only going to be taken seriously when we are serious interlocutors. And if you look at how the UK government has, uh, treats the Scottish government the whole time, I mean, they're now even trying to claw back powers through this internal market bill. Um, I mean, this is um, its just another example of how uh, the attitude uh, that there is um, is not conducive to, but, to know, us someone feeling said, that it's it, worth staying. Someone said there was a mutual... Um, uh, not, not a mutual attitude, perhaps, between uh, the Scottish government and, and the UK government that uh, perhaps they're, they're both not necessarily uh, um, <laughs> governing with kind of unity in mind all of the time. Well, there, there's another more interesting um, uh, description, which is about um, mutual solitude. Uh, which I think was first coined in, in relation to um, uh, French and English-speaking Canada. And, uh, I mean, I know there are some people who in uh, UK network broadcasting work incredibly hard to try and balance something which it's going to be impossible to, to keep everybody happy and have the nations and regions of the UK balanced in terms of how we see ourselves in a UK media uh, context, but I, 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 I listen to uh, network um, radio and watch network telly sometimes, and I think, my goodness, even on programs which are better than others and think um, things are so out of whack. Uh, and in ways which would just be unimaginable in countries like Germany, where they actually have... Uh, a notion of broadcasting about the different lender which make up the different states that make up the Federal Republic of Germany. And in the UK, it's still, this is, I mean, the, the, the whole COVID experience, um, which is, is profound and challenging for absolutely everybody, and it is not a party political uh, issue. But one thing it has most definitely shown for the first time is that, you know, there, there is not one British NHS. I mean, it's, it's taken how long, how many decades for people to realize that, that there are actually um, uh, four different national health services um, in the UK, um, where it's taken a Welsh Labour First Minister, not an SNP First Minister of Scotland, to say, well, hold on a second, why are there not travel restrictions between um, hotspots in England and Wales? Why is it okay to have limitations at some point between, I think it was, was it Northampton and Northamptonshire? So it's all right to have limitations there, but it, oh no, we cannot have it between hotspots in England and, and places in Wales. So the inability of some people just to think themselves into the, 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 the mind of a Welsh First Minister or a Mayor of Manchester or a First Minister of Scotland um, yeah, I can't. I, I can't fix that for other people. They have to. They have to want to do it differently and better. But they don't really. They're too important for that in their own heads. 
but that's some people isn't it yeah and, and, you know the politics of of any country are, are transient and wasn't that long ago we had a Labour government where voters in England and Scotland were, were returning Labour governments with big majorities obviously uh, you, you and your party were the, the main beneficiary of the collapse of uh, Labour in Scotland but you know the UK isn't just the current government is it it's beyond that and I, I spoke to John Swinney about this a couple of years ago and he said on the night of the EU referendum when he felt that sense of loss he said he realised how people would have felt who voted no had they lost in 2014 and he realised that if there's another referendum and you win it, that there will be a large group of people in Scotland that feel a sense of loss, that part of their identity, even people who voted yes, perhaps, or leave or whatever it is on the ballot paper, or another word, um, will feel, oh, actually, you know, I, I took the decision either way, but there's a sadness there. And, and how do you manage that? You know, we talk about things like loser's consent. How do you, how do you deal with that in a, let's say you, you win a future referendum? You can't see this in a podcast, but I've just spent the whole time whilst you were asking that question, nodding vigorously. <laughs> I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying. And maybe that's a byproduct of the fact that I've spent the last, you know, two and a bit years in doing this research and polling, thinking myself into other people's, um, other people's uh, thoughts. I don't think I'm getting the front door there, by the way. <laughs> um, that, and, that was a doorbell. It sounded like a ghost. That is an old doorbell. Um, and so, yeah, I get that. And that's, um, that definitely informs my thinking. And um, moving into an, uh, another referendum situation, that will definitely inform any contribution that I have to, to make about that, um, uh, the importance of... Um, communicating with people who we will never persuade. Obviously, yes. I'm very focused on people who are open-minded and undecided. I have got good friends who will never, ever, ever, ever vote yes in any circumstances, and they're still my good friends. And I know it will break their hearts. Um, Don't do it to them, Angus. Don't upset your friends. <laughs> Put them first. <laughs> um, and f now that we are a majority that wants something else, we have to make sure that um, the, the, the new future that we build is one that they can realize is theirs as well and that it will not be what they imagine it to be. And that, that onus is on us and it will be to communicate uh, and, but, but also to be empathetic about uh, where people are coming from. I, to I totally, totally understand why this is important and we want to get it right. We want Scotland to be the best country that it can be. And we're, you know, we are trying to do something in a, um, a democratic, peaceful, civic um, uh, way. And this is not made any easier by people just saying, oh, well, no, 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 you can't decide. No, 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 you can't have a referendum. No, it doesn't matter how you vote. And, you know, just think that through for a second about what that actually is, because that's not a democracy. And uh, I, I keep on getting this asked this but from people on my side of the argument. Oh, but they'll never say yes to a referendum. We have to come up with a plan B in case they say no. And I say to them, we are Democrats. We will win this by going to the people, by persuading people. And when you start getting to 58%, which is where we are at the polls, and this is the thing that some people haven't really thought through yet, is that if you start saying no, you can't when you're at that level of support, 
it becomes an accelerant. And then the case is no longer about Scottish independence, it's about Scottish democracy. And then a whole lot of other people pile in who will be saying to themselves, you know, I'm not really into this independence thing, but my God, I do not want to live in a country that fundamentally disrespects our democratic wishes. And, and that is why Boris Johnson et al. are playing with fire if they continue down this road. For what it's worth, I don't think when we get there that that is where we will be. I think there will be an awareness that one can't say no for the reasons that I've, I've just been yes. saying. The, the plan B, which is, has come from sort of inside the independence movement and from some wings of the SNP, people like Angus McNeil, um, what would a plan B? They talk about a Section 30 order and things like this. Um, what would that be? Just to, just to basically hold a, effectively a wildcat referendum and do it without Westminster's consent? I think there's uh, people look at what are the other the, the other alternative uh, options that one might have you know people power uh, legal challenge um, holding uh, an unofficial referendum these are all things that people speak about and have spoken about and it's right that one should consider all of these things one of the things that I think is profoundly important uh, to us though is uh, legitimacy consent and the the prospect of the result uh, being, being made in a way that is respected by all sides domestically and crucially internationally. And, and I know because I've had dealings with interlocutors in the continent, the level of understanding now for why Scotland should become independent is stratospheric compared to 2014. And I know, uh, because it's been said to me often enough, if you guys vote for this, uh, you will be very welcome. And so some of the things and some of it was engineered in 2014 to give the, the sense of a cold shoulder and it's going to be problematic and, and all of that in relation to the rest of the eu um you know we've had repeated comments by spanish foreign ministers saying that if this is agreed within the uk and it's part of a constitutional process then of, of course they will respect that we've had all kinds of people in the european union saying if this is something that is voted through in a process that is agreed with the uk government um, then of, of course it is something that will be now these things matter because driving into a cul-de-sac which is exactly what's happened in in catalonia is the last place that we need to be and um i think we need to recognize the power that we've got which is uh, which is amazing uh, to be where we're at um uh, in in a, in a consistently majority uh, situation now in scotland uh, is patience um, and maintaining, uh, keeping the heat, as we would say, um, is 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 going to be absolutely crucial for, for, for us in the next phases. So before a potential referendum, there's the Holyrood elections next year. And before that, you are going through a selection process to become the SNP candidate for Edinburgh Central. How does it feel to kind of be going back to that? You know, you, you've done it in the past to, to get elected elsewhere. Does it feel like, I don't know, how, how does it feel? Does it feel like sort of going back to square one in a weird way? It feels totally different because the rules are totally different about how you do it. Uh, when I first tried to get selected, uh, and I ran in the 1999 Scottish Parliament elections, the first elections, that involved turning up to branch meetings and try and persuade 10 people in a, in a freezing church hall that you are the right person, and then one or two of them would become delegates and go to the constituency, and then would select you. 
So when I was selected as the SNP candidate for Murray, I was selected with, now let me get this right, 17 out of 21 delegate votes. And that's how it worked then. I literally went and I went to jumble sales and I went to meetings and I, I know who all the 21 were. And we've now moved through time to a party that is one member, one vote. So it's no longer a delegate system. And this is a good thing. You join a party, you should have a say. That's fine. That's great. Um, and But now we've gone into a situation where because of COVID, because of GDPR, because of um, decisions that have been made, um, to, to a situation where S, prospective SNP candidates don't know who the membership is. It, that information is not given to us. At all. So we, at all. So we are only allowed to, you know, I have to explain how this works. I, and listeners, lis, listeners can't see Matt Ford holding his head in two <laughs> hands at the moment. Um, this is a because, former party organized. That's just unthinkable. Well, so let me explain how it works. And on some levels it, it works, of course, which is, we're in COVID, so we're, we're trying to restrict um, uh, people from um, uh, electioneering in ways that are, are, are not safe. That's fine. Yeah. So what we are allowed to do is we are allowed to have a website. We are allowed to use social media. Um, we are allowed to speak to people that we know um, to be members. Uh, and there are hustings, so people can listen to you um, online. And we are allowed a certain number of emails, which are then sent to all members. We're not given the, the, the membership information. We provide uh, the, uh, the communications, which is then sent to, to all members. Uh, so, you know... The, and no on, phone on, numbers? Uh, no phone numbers, no. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it's, they're, they're really making it hard for you. For all so the this is so it, it's difficult for all candidates. Uh, it's uh, so on that you, your view would be the quite traditional old style organizing thing of um, of ringing people up and all of that, and yeah. that is how it worked in all political parties beforehand. But there are also um, there are also challenges which might not be obvious on on first view. You know what happens if you're somebody that wants to run who is not very technically averse is not very good at social media, is not very, um, is not very computer oriented, yeah, is not very good yeah. at, at um, making videos of, of, um, uh, of running a PR campaign effectively for themselves. Yeah. And nowadays, if, if you are going to get out there and be seen, you're having to do it via Facebook, via Twitter, via, via every platform you can imagine so that people can see you now. For me, as somebody with a high national profile, I have two newspaper columns a week. I, have, uh, I haven't looked, but I've got tens of thousands of followers on, on Twitter and Facebook. I have a pretty broad reach. If you are starting off where I was starting out, trying to be selected, that is nigh on impossible. And so uh, I'm, I'm not sure that there is, a, there is an easy fix to, to all of this, because of course there were challenges in days of yore um, uh, under the old old um, uh, ways of selecting candidates as well. And so we just have to think our way through. I mean, some things I think the SNP are doing very well. I'm sure other parties are doing something, something similar. I've never seen as many uh, uh, black and ethnic minority candidates come forward as has been the case. I've never seen um, uh, people from other um, minority groups, whether it's disabled, whether it's uh, LGBT, whether it's... Um, 
uh, trans colleagues. There are, uh, there are a whole series of um, people who uh, are coming forward um, and the, I mean, the biggest minority of all, and not minority of women, um, uh, are, uh, are standing in numbers which haven't in the past as well. So on some level, some things are working really well. On other, on other levels, I think they are, they are not. I'm not sure there's an, an, an easy fix with it. I think the thing in normal circumstances which would restrict your ability to speak to party members, frankly, I, I'm not, I don't think that that's workable. I mean, I've tried to do uh, something quite innovative, which is I'm the first um, candidate going for selection who has set up their very own um, uh, selection hub. And what does so that mean? And, well, if you go onto my, uh, my website, www.angusrobertson.org, um, you can click on a button and it says talk to Angus. Yeah. And it then you have a choice of times that you can choose. And if you are a mem Edinburgh Central member... Um, so you live in Edinburgh Central, you're an SNP, yourself identifying as an SNP member, you can arrange for a time to speak to me, to talk, you know, you may have an issue, you may have a, well, what do you, what, if you were elected, what would you do with this or that? And that has been used. Okay. But um, you, you're not, I mean, we have a membership of over a thousand people in Edinburgh Central. Yeah. Um, I mean, surely so, a better way, and I, I realise this is getting sort of quite organisatory for listeners, but it's still an insight into how politics actually works. With GDPR and stuff like that, surely you could just say to members in, you know, X constituency, um, and basically an opt-in or opt-out service on your email address and phone number being given to candidates, and then people could say, yeah, I'm happy for any candidate. Because as a local member, I would want to be canvassed directly. I wouldn't be happy just with the general stuff, well, because I'd have questions for you. And that makes well, it... I would, argue, I would argue that by joining a political party... You are in effect asking to be informed, of course, about the workings of your local branch, about policy development, about candidacy selection, and so on. So, some of this, I think, is down to interpretation, and some of it, I think, as all people who've been involved in politics know, um, as soon as membership lists are are you know uh, are widely dispersed, there's all kinds of jiggery pokery that goes on, and that's a very difficult thing for a party headquarters in any political party uh, to manage. So, I mean. There's swings and roundabouts in, in all of this. Um, uh, and I, I, I don't think there is, there's an easy fix to some of this. I mean, one of the things that has uh, come up in, in the SNP selections is um, the, the notion that um, so some people say that you shouldn't be spending money in a selection contest, what? which is odd. Because I mean, how can you do it without if, spending money? Well, exactly. How can you run a selection campaign that doesn't involve an expenditure? Well, it involves no expenditure if you have no ambition to win. Yeah. That's one thing for sure. Uh, but your ability to communicate effectively with members at a time when you're restricted in how you can do it, you are pretty much left with the ability to advertise what you're doing, what you're saying um, uh, through social media. So that's the likes of Facebook advertising and, and so on. And the notion that you shouldn't be able to do that, I think, is for the birds. I think it's it's um, that is here to stay. Uh, that there um, uh, that there is a case for uh, spending limits. I'm I'm very much in favour of that. Has complications though, uh, of course, uh, because uh, how does one, for example, take account of somebody who wants to be a candidate that's living in another country and has to fly back? I say that because I did that. 
So if what, you're going to eat up 90% of your uh, allowance for spending in a selection contest because you're having to fly from here to there to, yeah. to, to, to speak at a meeting or whatever. Anyway, these are practicalities. Yeah. Um, but these, the, these are some of the new normal, I imagine, for because most That's political parties are now one member, one vote. And yeah. particularly when you are a political party that is successful and you know we are now polling between 50 and 60 percent so i think in european terms we are probably the most successful political party in europe that what that brings with it is then a lot of people who want to run a lot of people who want to take part and that's a good thing but i just think we have to make sure that we've got kind of 21st century solutions to how we do that um and that there's not unforeseen consequences for um, making decisions that, that, that might make that more, more difficult. So when you're the leader of the SNP, then, would you change these rules? I think that's what's known as a leading question. Um, and uh, I have absolutely no intention of, um, uh, of running for, from, for that office. I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have been the deputy leader of the SNP and the, uh, the leader of the, the SNP in the House of Commons for a decade. So I, I can say with absolute certainty what, what really appeals to me and what really appeals to me is um, being selected and elected for the part of the world that I grew up in. So I'm from Edinburgh Central, it's where I went to primary school, where I went to secondary school. And, and that notion appeals to me tremendously. And being a good constituency MSP, but being part of the making... Um, making sure we get a yes result in the independence referendum is absolutely up there for me. God, there must be and part if along of you the that way, sees the way things are going and thinks, well, look, you know, of course, Nicholas Sturgeon's not going to be around forever. Um, you would be one of the biggest assets that the SNP would have beyond the next election if you're selected and elected. You're, you're going to be seen as a favourite. You're going to be talked about as a potential successor. There's nothing I can do about people saying that, Matt. And that's, um, you know, I, I think you're saying that uh, for cheeky kindness. I, that's how I would describe <laughs> your your fazog. Uh, looking looking at you on this Zoom call while the, the listeners can't can't see you chortling away from yourself, having thrown that hand grenade in. Thank you very much. It's true. Um, isn't it? You will be talked about. Just, you know, that's well, not... it, it, listen. What's that thing about? Um, God give me the strength to know the things I can't can change the things i can and the wisdom to know the yeah. difference between the serenity the two. prayer yeah. i you know i'm I, i'm in politics because i want to make things happen i'm pretty clear about how i want to make things happen i'm also a i hope a fully paid up member of the human race with a 15 month old baby a wife um and you know some some degree of normal life and having looked at the hours that a Nicola Sturgeon, or to be fair, a Boris uh, Johnson, or, you know, no doubt Keir Starmer's having to do this as Labour leader now. You know, this is all-consuming stuff. And I think I think one of the other challenges for um, the, the, the era we're in is if we're wanting politics to work, we have to find a way of getting good people in, but who um, can do the job that they're elected to do, but they uh, are also able to... Um, have a life and have a family and I am uh, that that is absolutely the forefront of my thinking which is why when you say what you said right at the start there I'm, I'm you know I am not standing here going oh yeah that's definitely what I want it's not what I'm interested in is getting elected helping us win the referendum if there are things I can do in an SNP government to help along the way absolutely but you know m my big picture is is getting the ball over the line with the referendum and helping 
um, that, that phase that we talked about before of the what comes afterwards to make all that work. And if I can be a part of that, that's, that's what's at the top of my list. I was going to ask you about being, now that you're a dad, being a, a, should you get selected and elected? Because a lot of MSPs are standing down this time, almost a quarter, possibly more, from all parties. A lot from the SNP, though. Aileen Campbell and Gail Ross are both saying that they're standing down. These are, these are young women, they have children, and they're saying they're standing down to spend more time with their family. Do you worry about going back into politics, and specifically Holyrood at a time when some people who've served there from all parties say, actually, it's not compatible with family life? So the short answer is yes, absolutely. Having said that, though, and having been at Westminster for whatever it was, 16 years, where my commute was five hours there and five hours back, you know, I, I am literally at the moment a five-minute walk from the Scottish Parliament. Uh, and the Scottish Parliament has working hours which start at nine and they finish before six. Now, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of other things that you have to do besides and not just be there. I get that. Um, but... Um, Whoever is the MSP for Edinburgh Central is um, very close to um, what, what they're needing to do during the week. Now, that, has, that brings challenges with it because it also uh, people will think that you're close and you're accessible, and you are, and that is a good thing. Um, and I would certainly want to be a lot more proactive than the current member of the Scottish Parliament is who is famed for um, having had only a less than one handful of surgeries that are open to the general public in the entire time. Sorry, I should mention for those who don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, Baroness Ruth Davidson, who is stepping down as... Friend of the yeah, show, MSP friend of the show. For, um, as the uh, MSP for, for Edinburgh Central. So you, you need to be there, you need to be out there, you need to be there for the communities um, and do, doing all of that. I know she, I know she hasn't in, in ways that they would have have hoped so I, I think there's high expectations that whoever comes next is actually going to do that and i would be delighted to do that if you follow ruth's trajectory you may end up in the house of lords angus who knows um again for the benefit of listeners to this illustrious podcast the scottish national party has never nominated anybody to sit in the house of lords and that will never change well who knows who knows what happens you know politics is a volatile business lord well in fact in an independent scotland you could have your own house of lords you could become Lord Robertson of Edinburgh. Well, I am. Um, nice um, this is you know shock horror. Um, this is I, I I concede an area where I do not agree with SNP policy, uh, which is I I think there is a role for a second chamber, uh, a revising chamber. There is in the UK. It shouldn't be appointed and anointed. Uh, I think there are modern and clever ways that you can have a second chamber which isn't in direct competition to the. Uh, to the the lower house yes. and i think we should have that in in scotland too um uh, i think that that would be a thoroughly good thing who knows um, maybe there might be matt ford might uh, relocate to i won't be allowed in will i why why not well because i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a, I'm a dirty english so-and-so who believes in the union i'm a i'm a norbag or whatever pete wish would have called me six years ago. <laughs> Not at all. It's uh, no, no. I don't think so. There will be people of like. all. There will be people of all political. Um, there will be people of all all political um, <laughs> directions and in, 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 as there are now. And incidentally, I know you were saying that uh, um, uh, to cause a mild a mild frisson. The SNP is full of English people, and as you know by by birth, I would qualify uh, myself um, for English sporting teams. But I, I, don't right, the, uh, I don't have the. Set. That's right. How do you know that? I just remembered from last time you told me. There you go. 
There you go. Yep, exactly. you say. Um, oh, well, I mean, I mean, no one loathes the English more than the English. I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> at all that there are that there are hordes of English people desperate for Scottish independence. It's a unique phenomenon. Um, just on things, actually, I did want to ask you, and I realise I've kept you for far more than I promised I would. Um, just on things that are different next time, and, and you mentioned earlier the stuff you'd got in trouble for saying. Another thing that you got in trouble with some people for saying but you got a lot of praise in other quarters was for saying that next time in terms of uh the tone of things online was that the kind of and i know we shouldn't use the phrase cybernet and it's kind of taboo but that, i think you know what i mean and what i'm getting at is that perhaps the tone of some of the pro-independent supporters online last time wasn't conducive to the to the cause and you've been very open in in saying that and then that, that ruffled a few feathers but um is that something you're kind of going to pick up again or did you get in too much trouble for it? And, and uh, what hope well, do you have I, that well, next time things will be different? Well, so this, um, for, for people who haven't followed the ins and outs of this, this was um, off the back of an article that appeared in the Herald newspaper, uh, where, which had the, the headline involved um, SNP um declares war on cybernats i think is what the newspaper headlined with and if you read the article and read the quotes that i gave to the newspaper when i was being asked about um uh the extremes of all political directions uh, online i was unequivocal in my my condemnation of uh, aggressive um uh, communications uh, online of all political uh, directions uh, but because of the headline of the newspaper um, I, I got pelters for um, uh, having a go at people quotes on my own side which is not what I was um, but just for the avoidance of doubt I um, uh, I am profoundly unhappy by by people on my own side or any others uh, who see fit to, to spend uh, time having a go aggressively at, at people from online. And uh, I, I think that we are going to have to change that. And one of the things that I'm, I'm wanting to do wearing my Progress Scotland hat in the next round of uh, research that, that we're going to do is to try and to, to understand by asking people who are in this open-minded, op um, uh, undecided group, <clears throat> what form of communication is most attractive? Is it being shouted at and lectured um, and told you were wrong, apologize, um, as opposed to really, you know, welcome, good on you. Thank you for thinking about what we are saying now. I respect the fact that you may have had a different view back then, but now I, it just seems pretty obvious to me that there, there, there are ways of communicating which are conducive to building empathy, rapport, uh, a feeling of, uh, of welcome uh, or of, of a, space, a, a space where you can trust somebody else to have a discussion about things which, as we've already touched upon, might be very personal and might be very profoundly hardwired into people's thinking. And I mean, I think <clears throat> what is invidious about um, uh, how certain parts of the social media um, operate is that there are bad actors that are playing roles in this. This is very well understood. Though I'm not talking about Scotland specifically here. This is what is happening uh, around the world, and I think we just need to be alive to it. And 
um, I mean, it's it's not a surprise to me that the the most extreme um, uh, messages and uh, aggressive attacks that, that that happen online are by people who are using pseudonyms, and they won't even be be upfront and honest about who they are. And lots of and, lots of flags on all sides of the debate. Whenever I see an avatar with a flag, I think, oh god, whichever flag it is, whether it's Union Jack, St George's Cross, even EU, I just think, oh man. Even though I've I've seen pictures of you, I've seen pictures of you holding up flags. Um, <laughs> I, 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 That's different. Uh, they were at sporting occasions. Oh, they were. It was all different because it was me and because it was something. No, but when Listen, it's on the avatar, it's the same with the rose. I think. Oh no. No, I think we shouldn't. We should not cede um, the symbols of our countries or our causes or, you know, whatever it is, to the extremes of anything. Yes. And so I know the point you're making. I know the point you're making. I get it. Um, but I'm, um, you know, I know it winds some people up tremendously. And, you know, I, um, I'm going to have to go away and have a look at my avatar after this. And, and oh, no, um, Well, you know what I mean? It's just, it was. It, no, I know the point. I know the, just, I know oh, the point on. you're making. But on either side, even if it's people I agree with, you know, I just think, oh, man, just have your face. Yeah, we all know who everyone is. Face—I mean, that should be the law anyway. I think on certain like social media platforms, is you shouldn't be allowed to run anonymous accounts. That certainly not. Well, I think I think the 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 other way of doing it is that for those of us who are lucky enough to have a blue tick, it's it's almost as if it's uh, you're you're something special because you have a blue tick. I think that needs to be turned totally on its head. I no, think no, don't you take I my think blue everybody tick away. Should be, everybody everybody should be able to be recognised for who they are. And then you just have a simple setting of saying, "I only want to, I only want to be um, hearing from from verified uh, users of Twitter or Facebook yeah, or, or whatever." It looks else. so nice, doesn't it? Makes you feel cool, though, doesn't it? At this point, Matt Ford is lying back on the couch and um, uh, he's uh, sharing his innermost thoughts and uh, feelings. I think this has become more about me than uh, about you. Um, <laughs> Just on the contest, then, and I keep saying I've kept you for more time. You've you've got some amazing um, endorsements for, for this campaign, Edward Central, including I keep calling him Logan Roy because I've just been watching Succession. Uh, Brian Cox, um, not the, <laughs> the astronomer, the uh, the the Hollywood actor. Um, have you been watching Succession? Yeah, I watched. I've watched the whole of series one. And I've watched the starter series too, but I've um, I've uh, I've still to finish that off. So yeah, he's great. I, I thought because you've got to get him, you've got to have him on a video, surely. Just going fuck off. That's like his catchphrase. <laughs> he, I was waiting for it on the video. I was like, I hope it was going to go at the end. You know, endorse Angus Robertson. That didn't, that, no, yeah, fuck off. He, yeah, that would have been a surprise if he sent me uh, a video with that on it. Um, it might not have worked know. as a campaign tool, perhaps. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm really lucky the that whether it's um, Brian Cox or or Ricky Ross or uh, Charlie Reed from the Proclaimers who signed me up to the SNP uh, 35 years ago. You know, I'm really lucky that the people I've I've worked with who've played a big part in the sort of independence movement are are supporting my campaign, and that's great. Uh, and and to me, as importantly, are all the other people. Uh, who you can see on my website and, and, and on my social media feed, who you may not have heard of, who you probably won't have heard of, who are grassroots members um, in, in Edinburgh who um, leaflet and canvas and are 
uh, meeting goers uh, or just supporters who are also saying that they support my campaign. And, you know, all, all of that is important. Well, here's a selfish question, actually. If elected, would you be the MSP for the area that effectively covers the Edinburgh Festival? So on that note, yes. do you think we'll have an Edinburgh Festival next year? I don't think anybody can honestly answer that question. Mm. I think, I think the, the optimal question around that is, do we think that we're going to have a vaccine before then? Um, I mean, my heart, I mean, I, I, so I, have a, I write a column in the Edinburgh Evening News and I have written about the challenges that exist for the like of the Stand Comedy Club uh, or the King's Theatre uh, or the Lyceum Theatre and the people who come to the Edinburgh Festival or the Fringe, all of these venues will be, be known to them. And this isn't an Edinburgh problem. I mean, it's a problem in the UK, it's a problem in the world for the, the, the cultural and the arts scene. And there's a big challenge. There is also an opportunity, though, that goes hand in hand because I don't know if you've picked this up over the last few years that you've been in Edinburgh, Matt, but there is, there has been a growing sense of a sort of a disnification of of, um, of Edinburgh, of a them and us, that, that they come, and then the festival and the fringe takes, and then they they go, uh, and meanwhile the middle of the middle of Edinburgh has got amongst the highest uh, rate of Airbnb. Uh, flats in the world uh, per square mile and the sense of community uh, for people who live there in stairwells where you know they are the only person that lives there when the bill the, the bins are filled to overflowing uh, when people are being priced out of the rental market because of what the, the buying of all these properties for short-term lets the impact that's having so there's quite a lot in all of this. It's not just about can we have a fringe or a festival and you know absolutely I want it to, to happen. I do think, though, we, we, we can take this opportunity. And some people have been saying that, leading people in the sort of art scene in Edinburgh, including the festivals, have been making this point. We can begin to reimagine how all of this works. How does it better include um, Edinburghers? Lower, um, rents, lower, lower rents during the festival for, for visiting performers. Costs yes. a fortune. Easy de declaring an interest. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I think it's prohibitive for a lot of people who would, you know, audiences in Edinburgh then you know, unable to see people because they can't afford to come and perform. It does cost a lot to stay there yep. for the month. But I guess that's an, that's an economic boon to the city. You know, that I guess in a weird way, that's the kind of, that's the, that's the sugar on the pill. That's, you know, it's such a big shot in the arm for the economy of Edinburgh once a year that you're not going to get anywhere telling people they should make less money out of it, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bit the biggest arts festivals in the world in, in, in the middle of this, and in the middle of the city, it's a medieval city. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it is at the same time fantastic, um, but also creates um, societal pressures and, and, urban, and urban pressures. The thing is, I've been coming so often, I kind of feel like I live in Edinburgh a bit. I'm like, I've, I live there every year. I then get annoyed. Before you know, you'll be voting yes to independence. <laughs> I get... I get annoyed with tourists. I'm like, I'm here as a tourist and I'm getting annoyed that I can't walk down Princeton Street in the, you know, the, or... or remember what I was saying to you about going, remember what I was saying to you about going native, about that being the yeah. good thing about being in Scotland. You'll be in Scotland for five minutes and then you'll be... I've become a... Um, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be cheering on the Yes campaign. <laughs> I, I can see it, Matt. Um, Angus. There's a, there will always a be a place for you. Oh, well, that's very kind. Probably in a prison cell somewhere, but it'll be a place. Not at all. Um, Not at all. We will be cheering you on during the fringe. Well, thank you. And hopefully it happens next year. And if not, I'm, God, fingers crossed that I'm sure that, you know, the Edinburgh Festival will happen again. It's just people are so, 
it's the same with Glastonbury and with football tournaments and things. These are big things in people's lives, aren't they, for performers and yep. audiences alike? Of course, yeah. And it's just a shame Absolutely. to not be in it. I mean, it must have felt weird during the festival. Because in a weird way, people in Edinburgh must fantasise about it. Imagine we just had a year off. And I, I guess you got it, but then I suppose no one could go anywhere anyway. We, we got it, and then we're largely sitting in the house and not going out. Yeah. Um, although, you know, obviously we've been trying to do a little bit more of the getting out and about, but, you know, we're now back to uh, back to being uh, more restrictive. And, you know, let's let's hope we can get through this and get a vaccine and uh, get ourselves all in a better place. Yeah. Well, that's a hopeful note to end on. Uh, Angus, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, Angus Robertson. Brilliant to get under the bonnet, really, and, and think about how you move people from one side of an argument to another, not just in terms of Scottish independence, but of any debate. What is the hard work you need to do? And I think so many people in politics either don't want to do it or can't be bothered, but you need people in every movement who are going to do that legwork, who are going to go underneath the stats and understand where the undercurrents are and what you need to do you know, for every group to try and get them there. So I think it's a fascinating lesson for all political parties and campaigns is the sort of stuff that Angus is doing around Scottish independence is the sort of stuff. And I'm sure other movements and other parties have this sort of thing, but um, it's really good to just understand how you try and do it and, and what they're doing to do it. Now, obviously they have favourable weather in terms of making the case that uh, Boris Johnson isn't necessarily in uh, Scotland's best interests. Um but it was a fascinating discussion. And that's what's great about having Angus on is even though, uh, you know, you can really disagree with someone about a really big issue, but that doesn't mean you can't have a really interesting, good-natured, good-faith discussion about it. Uh, and, of course, it's always good to talk about whiskey. So um, thank you so much for downloading this. As always, um, you know, this is done. Um, this is a labour of love, really. Uh, so it's always a pleasure that so many of you listen to it and enjoy it and leave wonderful iTunes reviews. And if you haven't done that yet, please just take a second out of your day because it, it helps push the podcast up the charts and it helps other people find it. So that can be a good deed for the weekend. Um, well, there you go. Enjoy the weekend. I, should, I mean, this, this podcast has been long enough without me rambling on a load of rubbish at the end. So have a great weekend and I'll see you next time. ta -ra.